Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Aoife Brennan. Aoife, and it's pronounced Aoife in her native Ireland, is the CEO of Synlogic Therapeutics. The company, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, is trying to build on years of work at MIT in synthetic biology. The basic idea is to create what the company calls synthetic biotics, or what you could call living medicines. Without getting technical just yet, the company's biological engineers design certain genetic properties into a microbe so that it can do something specific they want under certain circumstances, like, say, release degrading enzymes when in the presence of elevated disease-related enzymes. The company's lead program is for phenylketonuria, or PKU. It's a genetic disease in which the body can't adequately clear phenylalanine, an amino acid, from the blood. Eat too much protein, and phenylalanine will build up in the bloodstream for these patients. Unless they adhere to a strict diet, PKU patients risk severe mental retardation and neurological impairment. Synlogic has engineered a lead candidate that can produce phenylalanine-degrading enzymes designed to lower phenylalanine levels to allow people with PKU to consume more natural protein. Essentially, the goal is to make it so that these kids can eat a lot of the normal things kids like to eat. Aoife is a physician, scientist, and immigrant. She had research experience, some small biotech company experience, and some big company biotech experience before coming to Synlogic as chief medical officer in 2016. She was asked to step up as interim CEO in May of 2018 when her predecessor left to go work on another early stage startup. She took the permanent CEO role after a five month transition period. Until recently, she had been pulling double duty as CEO and CMO of this emerging company. Sounds like a lot of work. In August, Aoife had the unpleasant task of telling employees and shareholders some bad news. The company's lead drug candidate, designed to reduce high blood ammonia levels, failed in its most significant trial, a phase 1b-2 randomized placebo-controlled study. She pulled the plug. This is the kind of rough patch that all biotech companies experience at some point. How one responds under adversity is what matters most in biotech and life, actually. Now, before we start the episode, a couple quick things. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development program advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small to mid-sized pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and the right cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com. And are you a marquee service provider to the industry, eager to get your name out in front of the biotech leaders who listen to this show, like PPD? Ask me about sponsorship opportunities. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. The other thing you can do to invest in quality journalism is to purchase a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual subscriber. Companies and universities with multiple readers can purchase a group sharing license. And when you do that, you'll be able to read my writing plus in-depth reports from highly experienced contributing writers like Stacey Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, Leora Schiff, and more. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and Aoife Brennan on the long run. Aoife Brennan, welcome to the Long Run Podcast. It's 
wonderful to be here, Luke. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so first things first, uh, I gotta ask, did I pronounce your name correctly? Spot on. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty unusual. <laughs> now, you are from Ireland, correct, right? Yes, and so correct. can you just say this in your own voice? How do you how do you say your name? Aoife. I tell people it's like FIFA, the soccer organization without the F. And I think that gets, that kind of resonates. They get this visual kind of connection. And I think that seems to be the easiest way for people to remember how to pronounce it. FIFA. It's global. FIFA. People, yeah. people, uh, you know, they do follow their football, yes, their soccer. Yeah, soccer. I know. Um, well, Aoife, uh, great to have you on the show. CEO of Synlogic, a uh, company that combines uh Synthetic biology uses synthetic biology to uh, alter uh, live bacteria, microbiome altering therapies. Um, I know there's lots of different ways to say it, but I, I think that kind of has the concept. Yes, basically. <laughs> okay, so um, the company we're going to get to in the second half of the show, as listeners know, uh, you, you hit a little bit of a rough patch there in August, a uh, program for cirrhosis that did not um, meet its its goals. So you got some other things in the pipeline, and, uh, and we'll talk about those too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, first things first, um, who are you? Where, where, where do you come from? Originally, it's a loaded question. Um, I grew. I was born in Ireland, grew up in Ireland, um, in the southeast. So uh, never thought of myself. I think as a kind of a young girl that I would end up in Boston and, and working in the biotech industry. Um, but from an early age, was pretty fascinated with science. Um, you know, in high school, very much gravitated towards you know, physics, chemistry, biology, um, hated, you know, long form writing, you know, didn't, history wasn't my thing. I was always in the science lab. Um, and then after high school, decided that, you know, thinking about medicine was, was a good career for me. So, um, you know, went through medical school and training there and have been living in the U.S. now for about 15 years. Okay, well, let's back up just a little bit. What, uh, growing up in Ireland, uh, what, uh, what did your mom and dad do? Oh, so um, my mom my mom was a teacher for kids with special educational needs. Um, she's retired now for some time. My dad had various jobs. It was kind of a rural setting. He had a business. He owned a bar for a period of time. Actually, all the time I was in high school, I worked behind a bar. Um, I sometimes I joke that I learned more about my current job as a barmaid in rural Ireland than I did in med school or Harvard or anything I've done subsequently. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, had a very interesting background and upbringing. Small town, yeah, rural. rural, rural, you know, we lived, my dad's parents had a farm. So we basically lived on the farm. They gave a site of land where we uh, built our home and um, my parents still live in the same house. Um, no one in the family interested in science really growing up, um, no medicine in the family, um, you know, very much, um, you know, this was kind of a new thing when I decided I wanted to go in a scientific direction. There wasn't really a tradition within my family of, of those kinds of careers. Um, but I think in retrospect, a lot of kind of the experiences of growing up, the independence I had kind of growing up, having to kind of pave my own way um, have paid off subsequently in terms of you know, helping me make career decisions and uh, and other things that have come along. Do you have uh, brothers or sisters? Yeah, I'm the oldest of five. Oh, oldest so, yeah, of five. So that's, okay. that's a small Irish family, but <laughs> <laughs> I know I think, um, you know, again, I think there's elements of that background that come out. You know, I tend to be bossy, probably because I'm the oldest, the oldest daughter, right? So uh, definitely I'm, uh, I'm very, very much fit that character of, of uh bossy older sister i think well that is a word that often gets applied <laughs> to uh women in a way that doesn't exactly I'm is well, it used yes. with boys and men yes yeah yeah very much aware of that but um but did, it, were you uh significantly older like was there a, like you were like babysitting your younger oh, siblings yeah. and- i wasn't significantly older but um you know, we were kind of steps of stairs. You know, there was a year between basically all of my siblings. But um, from a very early age, you can learn to fend for yourself and then to look after younger siblings. Um, you know, I joke when I look at my own kids, I think, wow, when I was your age, I was able to, you know, get up, get myself out for school, make breakfast. Um, so you do get to, you know, when, you be, when you're part of a big family, um, everyone rows in, you take care of yourself uh, from a young age. Um, I think it's, it's good training. 
Yeah, and kids these days, they need their shoes put on before they get to the bus. What's up with that? <laughs> I don't know, Luke. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so you had this uh, independence instilled early. Uh, how did you get that science bug? Well, in school? Probably. I think, you know, when um, I had a, a math teacher who also taught physics early on, who, you know, I kind of just gravitated to her, towards her personally, I think often... You can see there was probably somebody who came along that was particularly inspiring that I could relate to at just the right time that kind of pushed me in, in one direction. Um, and I think that was probably, you know, I can identify one teacher that, you know, I thought she was cool. It was, you know, I was maybe, you know, 12, 13 at the time. Um, she very much was, um, you know, kind of physics, math. It was an all-girls Catholic boarding school for high school. So, um, you know, she was very much, you know, this is something that was accepted, you know, you did math at a high level. Um, I think that definitely kind of gave me that permission to, to gravitate towards STEM. Um, you know, I did all of my kind of subjects for my exams were always very much focused on, on science and biology. Um, just loved the logic, loved the problem solving, um, you know, didn't have a lot of patience for kind of essay writing and, you know, loved to just get, you know, use my mind, think about, and problems and challenges and you know, love jigsaw puzzles and I felt like math and science was sometimes kind of like a big jigsaw puzzle where you had to solve you know a problem equation you know, loved all of that kind of thing liked fast pace um, you know multiple choice questions lots and lots of problems those tended to be the exam settings where I excelled as opposed to you know where you had to sit down and spend four hours crafting you know a big position piece um, so I think that just naturally you know you gravitate towards the things I think that you find engaging and that you you know find relatively easy where you're good at and you then start to kind of double down in those areas I think those were things that really influenced my kind of decision choices around subjects in high school and then ultimately my choice to kind of go to uh, to medical school after I finished high school and, and gravitate toward that career. So the math and science, uh, there was a natural aptitude, kind of came easy for you. Yes. Uh, what was the big part of the education working behind the bar? <laughs> well, I think, you know, ultimately as you... Um, you know, math and science is great, but when you get into kind of team sports like drug development, when you start working in industry, it's really about people. Um, and I think working behind a bar, you get to see people at their best and you get to see people at their worst. Um, you get to establish relationships. You get to think about, do I trust this person? You know, if I turn my back, you know, are they going to steal a carton of cigarettes? Um, you get to, at a young age, get used to interacting as a peer with adults, right? So it gives you kind of confidence to uh, share thoughts, establish relationships, hear what's going on in, in their world. Um, and I think as you kind of, as your career progresses, those interpersonal and emotional kind of EQ skills become more and more important, right, in terms of making connection with people, understanding what motivates them, seeing the kind of when they ask a question, seeing the emotion behind the question, not just answering the question at face value, but kind of, why are they asking me that? You know, what's going on? How can I really keep digging to work out kind of what's you know going on in their mind? And I think a lot of, you know, being a barmaid <laughs> is, you know, some of those kind of skill sets. But um, I'm kind of imagining this now, like, teenage girl behind the bar like you're not even old enough to drink at this point right uh, probably some older men gathered around maybe you know yep. teasing you you gotta oh, you know yeah. tough toughen up a little oh, bit absolutely absolutely <laughs> you have to defend yourself you have to toughen up um you know i think there were definitely difficult situations i found myself in um and again i think it comes to just that independence being able to handle yourself um being, you know, developing a backbone and being able to push back. Um, you know, all of those were really important kind of early life lessons. That, confidence. Yes. Conf you need confidence to go to medical school? Yes. Well, well to, but first you go to college. So where, where do you go? Well, actually, in Ireland, you go directly from high school to med school. It's a six-year, you know, through program, oh. um, which is, is really interesting because it means that kids are making decisions, you know, early on, right, in terms of what their career is. But it's nice because once you get into med school, it's kind of you just can just focus on your studies and, and really taking the opportunity. You're not kind of having to worry as an undergraduate, how do you get your MCAS scores or how do you make your C, build a CV so that you get, get selected for med school? 
Um, in Ireland, you go straight through, you do kind of pre-med, which is based on campus. So, you know, with very much kind of the sciences and then you transition to working in more of a hospital setting. So where your lectures are kind of on site, but at the teaching hospital. So it's a six year program. Um, you know, I think it's it's a great training. I, I really thrived in college and still have very close relationships with the people, my classmates, because you spend these kind of six really intense years with the same group of 80 kind of guys and girls. Um, and, and you learn to know them very well. And, and again, you can establish that long term relationship that I think lasts a lifetime um, because, because of that. But it was a great experience. I went to Trinity, which is right in the center of Dublin. Uh-huh. Um, and it was it was wonderful. Loved it. So, did you? When did you decide to specialize? So, um, you know, I, I the problem solving thing I think is probably a theme throughout my career. Um, as you know, you graduate med school, you do an internship, you spend six months doing surgery, six months doing medicine. Um, I knew I wanted to do internal medicine. That was kind of always my focus. Um, so you do, similar to here, you do an internship and then you're a resident, but they call it a house officer there. Um, so you do basically three years of general medicine um, as an intern and then as what they call an SHO or senior house officer. And at the end of those three years, it's kind of the equivalent here of a residency. You decide, are you going to do some specialty? Are you going to you know, continue in hospital medicine? Are you going to do general practice, pediatrics, or, or do other things? Um, I decided that I loved endocrinology because of the problem-solving element. Um, you know, I loved getting data. You know, a patient comes in with a problem. You run a lot of tests, biochemistry, sitting down with a big chart with lots of symptoms and diagnostic tests. And, you know, just late in the evening in the hospital, I was often kind of in the chart room <laughs> with data and, you know, pulling data out into a little kind of keeping notes and, and pouring over lab data and historical data and, coming up with a unifying diagnosis and I really loved that kind of thing and um, endocrine tended to be that kind of specialty particularly during training because you're disproportionately exposed to the challenging endocrine issues um, and I, I just loved that I kind of wanted to move towards academic specialties I, I really liked the kind of problem solving element with endocrinology and I liked the fact that unlike surgery where you know you see a patient they have surgery, you see them post-op and they're gone. And endocrine often there's a longitudinal relationship with patients that I kind of thought would be very satisfying. Um, so I, I gravitated towards endocrine. Um, I did my subspecialty training, which is five years um, in endocrinology, become board certified or the equivalent of board certified. Um, and at the end of that thought, well, I want to be in an academic setting and um you know, the assumption was if you go abroad to do some further studying and um, that you can, you know, come back and then get an academic job back in Ireland. So that was kind of the career plan. Academic. So are you thinking at this point you'll become just a researcher or both physician and scientist? Yeah. So the the goal, you know, back and I think things have changed a lot since I was kind of making the decision. But the goal then was you kind of became what was called a, a triple threat. So you made a career that combined teaching, patient care, and research. And that was how you became professor of medicine. So you had to kind of do all three. It's not, that's not the way now. I think we've moved on. But if you look at any of the kind of big giants of medicine, often they were great clinicians who had, you know, patients and had this Midas touch with being able to make a diagnosis and had this kind of godlike stature on the wards. Um, they also had an active academic practice with a research lab and publishing high impact papers. Um, and we also then had a teaching role with the undergraduates. And those were the people who got to become professor of medicine and had a bust in the entry hall. <laughs> and that was always the, you know, the aspirational goal, right, was uh-huh. not just to excel in one area, but you had to excel in all three. Uh-huh. And that was kind of the pinnacle of, of um, medical kind of success uh-huh. to, to do that, to do that well. That was that part was of the culture, the, the culture oh, there. Yes, and, and you you bought in like yes. that's the track you thought yeah, you yeah. were on yeah well when you're when you go through you know the, I think the interesting thing about a medical career is you've blinkers on you end your residency and it's about getting into the most selective you know fellowship program and then you end your fellowship like getting the best job and how do you kind of there's a very clearly defined career path that I think ends up with kind of blinker thinking because you don't see the opportunities outside of that kind of um, uh, career path or, or career progression 
I think it took coming here to the US for me to see that there are all kinds of other ways that you can build a really satisfying career outside of, of that path. But, so how did you decide uh, to come to the US? So um, it's interesting, at the time I had ended, was coming to the end of my fellowship, um, leptin was the new hormone. Um, and there was a lot of work going on in Boston at the Beth Israel particularly. And uh, I thought, wow, you know, when it's not every day that a new hormone you know, is, is kind of identified and starting to be characterized. I read a New England Journal paper. I emailed the one of the authors. I said, you know, hi, I'm interested in, you know, here's my background. I'm interested in coming and doing some research in your lab. You know, do you think that's a possibility? And, um, you know, I got a response saying, sure, come visit. I came and I, you know, met with a number of people. Um, it was a lot easier, I think, you know, when I when I came than, than it is now. Um, but within kind of a couple of months. Um, they what, said, what years are we talking now? Let me see. I'm trying to think when I have to think back of when my, my son was six weeks at the time, because I remember coming to interview and being pregnant. So I have to think what year. So he's about 15. So I think that was probably around 2005. Wow. Son's six weeks old and you moved to yeah, yeah. interviewing for a new or yeah. moving to the U.S. Yes. Yeah, so at the time I was um, I decided because I wanted to do translational research that I would do my medical exams for the U.S. So. Um, at the time, I did all of my what's called USMLEs, but the medical licensing exams. So even though I was a practicing physician, you have to go back and do the basic kind of science to do the step one, step two, and step three. Um, so I got all of those and, and good scores in those. So I was able to then, you know, get a, a medical license and, and work here and do a combination of kind of translational research and uh, and kind of patient research, um, which was great. It was a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. At the Beth Israel. Yes, at the Beth Israel. Yeah. Uh, and the the lab was looking at leptin. Yes, yes yeah, it was the, looking the, at leptin. The, which, yeah. you know, later, or I don't know, maybe it was around that time, it was, uh, you know, the, this great hope. I think Amgen was working yes, on that's that. Right. Yeah, yeah, actually, mm -hmm. the lab I was working in was looking actually at the the area where leptin has played out, which was in leptin deficiency syndromes, lipoatrophy. And um, at the time, lipoatrophy was a big side effect of HIV medication. So there was this observation that patients with HIV had a very high risk of cardiovascular disease because some of the um, therapies were the antiretrovirals essentially caused wasting of the subcutaneous fat. Um, and they ended up with leptin deficiency, which increased risk of cardiovascular disease. You know, a lot of those side effects and toxicities have been taken care of with subsequent generations of, of products. But um, it did provide a really interesting opportunity to study the role of leptin deficiency in cardiovascular disease and cardiac outcomes. So that was kind of I wasn't working on leptin as a treatment for obesity, which I think we all know didn't didn't really pan out so well, other than, you know, very small subsets of patients with them. Um, specific genetic obesity causes but it was really the other side of the spectrum so it was great you know cutting edge new new stuff um really satisfying um and were you thinking that you were gonna uh, be a, a a U.S. immigrant, and this is it, or are you just going to do a tour of duty here and then move back? One to, year only. Uh, One year only was the agreement. Um, uh, you know, I had a six-week-old. I was moving back. I had it all planned out. You know, what my career. I even had a spreadsheet. I mean, this is kind of scary, right? But I had a spreadsheet with all of the, you know, who are the upcoming, who's going to retire, who are the professors of medicine who are planning <laughs> to retire. I mean, it's crazy, right? Oh, so <laughs> slots. You know, yeah. which slots are going to open up? Well, when you work, when your mm -hmm. aim is to move back to a small country that. Owns only has five or six medical schools. <laughs> you have to be very disciplined about thinking, you know, where am I going to apply? You know, where are the opportunities going to come up? So only a small number of opportunities. Um, so, you know, that was absolutely the plan and that was the plan. And then something happened, you know, towards the middle of the first year, there was, um, I became aware of this NIH training program. It was called the Scholars in Clinical Science Program. And the idea was that there's all this great basic research going on, and then there's this clinical outcomes research going on, but the big gap in training was between, for people who could bridge, basically, and it was a translational medicine training program, so it was a two-year program, fully funded by the NIH. Um, you know, you got to be a full-time student at Harvard for two years for free, essentially, you know, funded by the NIH. And unusually, you didn't have to be a U.S. citizen to apply, and, and you could apply and do it. Um, it was competitive. They only had 10 slots 
for Harvard per year. Um, so I thought I'd you know, throw my hat in the ring and see if, if this worked out. And I think that was my first kind of step off my planned, <laughs> my, my very carefully planned career path um, was enrolling and participating in that program because that then postponed our move back to Ireland for two years. But the opportunity was just so great um, you know, that, I, that we, I couldn't turn it down once I was selected for the program. Um, and it was amazing. It was just, you know, it changed my life. It opened me up to all kinds of other opportunities. And I think set me on my, my subsequent career path. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the NIH because, you know, that's uh, one of those agencies that reflects those um, enduring values of the United States as beacon of the world. Uh, we want to be the world leader in biomedical research and we'll recruit the best and brightest and yeah. we'll do what it takes. Yeah. Um, and not every place does that. Yeah. Um, and it's part of what, you know, yeah. um, drew you here. Yes. Uh, so you went to work on, on endocrinology and pretty soon you're, you're finding yourself settling in, putting down some roots. Yep. Kids are starting to grow up, I guess, a little, uh, yep. you know, um, yep. and, and um, how, what, what happened next? Um, so that was a wonderful program. My kind of aha moment was we got to spend, and I was very much on the research side, not even aware of any business kind of elements um, in, in medicine. But part of the program, we got to go to Harvard Business School for a semester. And we took the commercializing science program at HBS. And it was Vicky Sato was there. And, you know, I remember the first intro, you know, where Vicky stood up and, you know, gave her kind of life story and all the things she had done and worked. And I remember being like, wow, you know, I wonder if I could if I could do that, you know, because she was someone I identified with, you know, was a female scientist mom, you know, spoke very openly about, you know, when her kids were small and how she balanced and juggled and um, had this amazing career subsequently, you know, with involved in multiple companies and, and really had big impact on development programs and, and other things. Um, and even though I thought, you know, I felt like a complete fish out of water at, at HBS, I actually found myself getting more and more engaged in those kind of business topics and some of the challenges of how do you take a really great scientific idea and actually make it into a business because ultimately what that's the way to get it to patients um, and that whole you know how to do that really um, inspired me and the case studies I loved I just kind of got they were all like problem-based and you know that really kind of um, was very stimulating and I remember one evening going home with my husband and he said you know I don't know what you're doing right now but you know you're really engaged I've never seen you so alive you know you're clearly loving whatever it is you're doing I don't know but you're clearly loving it because you know your whole persona has changed um and when someone who knows you well says that to you you kind of feel like hmm, I should listen I should that's something I should listen to uh-huh uh-huh um, he was I very observant was had, had known you for some years by that point. Yeah. Um, so you're beginning to think maybe there's something for me to do in yeah. business. Yeah. Yeah. And what was that? Like, where, where did you go next? So I got a call about, you know, three, I think that opened the door, right? Because it, I think if that hadn't opened the door, I would never have taken recruiter calls or anything else. But, um, about three months later, I got a call from a headhunter about a small company in Boston. You know, very rarely are there endocrine opportunities because most of those are with Novo Nordisk or Eli Lilly, so they're um, in other parts of the country. But there was a small company, an immunology company, who were looking to develop a novel immunotherapy for new onset type 1 diabetes. Um, and it kind of piqued my interest, and I looked into the science, and I thought, hmm, that's really interesting. You know, they had great immunology, but they were starting to run their phase two trials and realized they needed endocrine expertise. This was Tolerix, right? That was Tolerix, mm -hmm. exactly, yeah. Um, and that was great. Within six months of moving, you know, it took me a long time to get kind of comfortable with the idea of moving away from this very scripted kind of career plan that I had to do something completely different. Um, you know, most of my thought was, well, will I ever get back? You know, if I move, will, you know, I ever get an academic job again? Will I be discounted as, you know, kind of a failed scientist who moves to industry? Um, it's, you know, the dark side. It's just about, you know, it's not about patients or science. It's just about making money. So, you know, there's all this kind of thought process that goes on. Um, but at the end of the day, the people I met through the interview process, you know, were just, they seemed like great people doing really great science and doing really rigorous science. And, um, you know, they had this big mission. You know, a lot of the senior management team at the company had kids with type 1 diabetes. JDRF were one of the big funders of the company. So it had this real strong sense of mission um, there. 
And within about six months of, of moving, I just loved it. I kind of just knew that this was the, the career I was probably going to spend the rest of my life working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're working on designing the phase two trials. Yes. This is pretty far along. This yes. is right. A, this is a good application of your yes. skills as yes. a clinician yep. and, and scientist. Yep. Um, but it didn't work out. No. So that was, we started two phase three studies subsequently. Um, great experience, but, you know, I still to this day can close my eyes and see the, you know, the readout, which was the main kind of graphic of the primary endpoint and the active and the placebo group just almost completely overlapping. You know, they were superimposed. Ugh. It was a graphic where you say, okay, where's the other line? <laughs> Is this a build slide? No, there are two lines there. They're just so close that you can't see see, see white space between them. And I think that was kind of another really important lesson in drug development and, and biotech. Um, you know, just devastating for the company, for patients, for, you know, I'd been there about three years at the time, but there had been people working at that company for 10, 12 years, just working on the concept and had really poured their all. More than a hundred million this. had gone in, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was, it's funny because recently the teplizumab data came out in the New England Journal, which was very similar molecule, very similar target. Um, but, you know, just in earlier patients who didn't have any diabetes. So I've continued to follow the space. I, I really think there's huge unmet need and, you know, it's... Um, Is that the one that's now held by prevention? Correct. Yeah. 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 So that was teplizumab, very similar to target anti-CD3, just a different different molecule. Um, so it's, it's an interesting space. I really hope that someone kind of cracks the nut and, and is able to do something in terms of treatment and intervention in type 1 diabetes. But uh, it wasn't going to be Tolerix. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development program advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small to mid-sized pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and the right cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatment to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com. Another alternative to support quality independent reporting is to subscribe to Timmerman Report. You can get an individual subscription or a company license with sharing rights. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit the green button that says subscribe. Type 1. I mean, this is a classic endocrinology indication. You work uh, three years on this, uh, put a lot of heart and soul in it, and then it hits the iceberg. Uh, So you got to find a new job. Uh, Where'd you go? So at that point, I kind of ended up, I knew that I was moving, staying in drug development. I just loved the whole team, the whole kind of solving problems, new thing every day. You know, you're working on an endocrine product, but, you know, EBV reactivation was a big side effect. So you're learning about virology and you're calling up a KOL and an expert on, on this area. So I just really love that. But at the time I thought, okay, I need, I've seen the early space. I've seen the small company space. I need to see, you know, what happens when products go further and get towards commercial. So I looked around for opportunities in more established companies um, and ended up at, at Biogen at the time, um, even though I kept telling them, I'm not a neurologist. And uh, like, no, it doesn't matter. You know, come on, you can you can add value. Um, it didn't. It seemed on paper like not the best option because, you know, they didn't have an endocrine program. It certainly was, was not in their strategy. But I just loved the people I met. I got a really good sense of the culture there, very science-based very much kind of, you know, the, the, re- the research and development organization was all about kind of doing good science and following the science, very high integrity group. Um, so moved to work on the MS program. Well, and maybe this is one as case where being an MD is, you know, gives you a lot of options because there's a lot of PhDs in this industry and, and they can, you know, get very narrow and deep in yes. their area. Yeah. MDs are in demand, especially for design clinical, you know, yes. the, that medical officer kind of role. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. so maybe they just said, look, this is a, you know, put the best athlete on the field. <laughs> she can, you know, learn this other 
Yeah, I think, you know, once you've got two years of industry experience under your belt, you speak the language, right? You know, CSR is a clinical study report. So, you know, I think that I tell other MDs who are moving, you know, I get called a lot for people, you know, give me advice. I want to move to industry. You know, what do I need to know? And I tell them, look, just don't worry about, you know, get your two years experience and then, you know, the world's your oyster. You can think about what company and everything else. But those first two years, it's learning the language, learning how to work as a team, you know, all those really important skills that are important for success subsequently in industry. Um, and it turned out that the move to Biogen was really fortuitous. Um, you know, I moved there because I thought the culture was the right fit for me and, you know, I got a really good feel. But in actual fact, it was the right time because they had just had the Tech Federa readout. So they were doing this exercise like looking at new therapeutic areas and new disease indications. As the non-neurologist, I got called on a lot to kind of weigh in on, um, you know, new opportunities, new things that that they were diligence projects, working with BD on, on new things. And I love that. You know, I'm just, you know, um, love kind of learning new things and, and having new challenges. So I absolutely thrived there. It was, it was a great time. There are extra dimensions to a large company like that that you hadn't been exposed to prior. Yes. At a- a oh, small yeah. company. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you're you're kind of roaming around Biogen and picking up new skills, learning new uh, sides of aspects of the business, yeah. starting in neurology, mm-hmm. MS, but then it morphed into yes, the rare the, disease. Yeah. So just about six months after I I joined, I got like someone knocked on my door. Um, I think it was the head of regulatory at the time saying we've just acquired this company they you know George thinks they have interesting assets we need someone to go over there and George Scanning goes to see you correct yes yeah mm-hmm. so it was actually these hemophilia products so they had acquired this uh, company out in Waltham I can't remember what their original name was um, was it Stromedics or no it was not Stromedics remember anyway the uh, Syntonics maybe it was on my payslip for the longest time because it was this kind of wholly owned subsidiary kind of structure for a while but they had two, it was an FC fusion kind of company. They had two assets that were thought to be interesting. Um, one was for treatment of hemophilia B, one was for treatment of hemophilia A. Uh, they needed, you know, the programs were moving quickly and they didn't have time to recruit externally for someone to go and kind of see if these products could be approved and could be real assets. So they asked me to move over and to see, you know, go assess, see, see what happens. Um so I, I moved over, I had to move out to the Waltham site um, and took those on and they moved really quickly and it was a great experience. It was kind of a little standalone unit. We were able to kind of create our own culture um, within another six months. It was like, okay, now you're VP, you're head of this therapeutic area. Within another couple of months, we got these two products approved. Um, and then once those products were approved, I think there was this exercise of, you know, well, if these are going to be, you know, anchor tenants in a, a separate franchise, you know, are other things that we should be thinking about in the benign hematology space. Um, and that's how I kind of started to get interested in cell and gene therapy. That's where we met um, because we, you know, we looked at some of the other benign heme indications and thought that, you know, a lot of them were really interesting, underserved, a lot of opportunity, um, but that the cell and gene therapy was likely to be the kind of disruptive technology in the space. And so started to look around and say, okay, what are the technologies? This was, you know, CRISPR was just starting to kind of come on the scene. And um, we met with the, the group at Sangamo. Thought it's, it seemed like, you know, these people have been around a long time. They know what they're doing. They put a lot of work into solving some of the problems, you know, that, that come along. Um, and established a collaboration there for some of the, it was sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. And those programs, I think, are still going. They're, they're dosing patients now in the clinic, but they've changed hands number of times since hemophilia sickle cell beta thal these are single gene uh, malfunctions and uh you know more tractable uh at least initially to some of these gene therapy and editing approaches uh gene therapy of course is also uh, a single has potential for a single dose uh one one shot for your life as opposed to the the chronic frequent dosing like you had been working on with fusion proteins correct so you're 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 seeing like where the future could be heading and and uh and people at biogen like in senior leadership they're 
they're amenable to this. Oh yeah, yeah, they were very amenable. They definitely saw the opportunity at the time. You know, they were very supportive of of moving on these ones. Um, you know, I used to joke my neurology colleagues that I had a biopsyable target organ. <laughs> unlike unlike them, you know, I think they saw this as something that could you know, potentially be applicable across a broad range of diseases that were of interest to Biogen, but that if it was going to work, it was going to be initially in these, you know, hematology indications, um, you know, particularly gene therapy for treatment of hemophilia B particularly was um, interesting. And then, you know, the sickle cell and, and beta-thal indications for editing were thought to be kind of the, the beachhead that may enable, you know, other expansion into other disease areas. So just biotech altogether, it's just like really booming around these years. And, and this is right when your, your career is, yeah. you know, on the ascent. Uh, so things are getting interesting. You're getting asked to do more things, take on new responsibility. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, eventually the Biogen has its hands on Spinraza. Yeah. You were involved with yes, that. That's right. Very important drug for spinal yes. muscular atrophy yes. yeah. um, and oligonucleotide therapies yeah. in yeah. general. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, wow. So by this time, uh, now, uh, is this around the time you start, you know, getting calls from outside uh, to, to come take on like senior roles at small companies? Yeah. So, so right around the time that um, the Aducanumab kind of phase three program started to kick off, um, you know, I think there was a strategic exercise going on across Biogen. I really firmly believed that Biogen should be in the rare disease business. I felt that selling in rare disease could help enable kind of other pipeline programs. I really wanted kind of this idea that the neurodegeneration and rare disease could coexist. They could kind of learn from each other and, and it could be a really good company strategy. Um, you know, right around the time that Biogen decided to spin out Bioverative, that was kind of half of the kind of pipeline was going with the new company. Uh, the Spinraza asset was, you know, also under my TA um, and that was going to stay at Biogen. I had a choice. I could stay, I could go, or I could, you know, number three, which was look um, look elsewhere. Go to Bioverative. Bioverative, With exactly. the hemophilia assets. Yes. Or you could stay, work on this kind of one really interesting product, but it's, you know, it's one yes. rare disease. And by that point, we had, you know, gotten through the readout of Spinraza. I'd learned before to let go of pr projects. You know, once you get them through efficacy and approval, you know, you have to, as a researcher, if you think they're yours, you kind of, it can be very frustrating as you see them handed off to commercial and, and, and medical affairs and the teams get much bigger. And I realized that where I can add most value is kind of in that early mid-stage development and getting products to, you know, a draft label. And once you have a draft label, then, you know, someone else can take it on. Spinraz experience was probably, you know, one of the best experiences of my career. You know, being part of that program was just amazingly gratifying. Um, so your but work it was time your, to work walk away. Your work was done on Spinraza primarily, yes. and the uh, those assets were going to Bioverative. That just wasn't uh, what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Huge amount of uh, priority is going on Aducanumab, which is also not your area. Yes. So it's like okay. Maybe time to look around. Time. Yeah, now could be the time. Um, and I didn't do a very extensive search. You know, it's um, the the opportunity at uh, at Synagic came up. Um, it was a headhunter called. Let's have a coffee. You know, no pressure. The usual way it starts. You know, let's chat. Um, I decided to meet JC. Um, JC Gutierrez Ramos, who was the CEO at the time. CEO. Yeah fantastic you know from the first I kind of went saying I'm wasting your time I'm not going to take this job I've only just decided that to pick my head up and to look at external opportunities you're the first person I've met you know it's this is not going to work out my timeline is I want to see the Spinraza filing done and then I'm going to look for another job but you know I'm just meeting you because I've heard your name and I thought it would be cool to connect <laughs> and um that became, you know, let's do lunch. And then the lunch became, let's have another, let's have you into the company to meet more people. And um, I was just really intrigued by the platform here. I had been obviously done a lot of diligence on gene therapy companies. I'd done a lot of diligence as kind of my role at Biogen on genome editing companies. But I thought, wow, this is kind of novel. It's different. Um, it should work. You know, the bits are all there. Um, it should work. The technology, I think, is ripe. It's the time. It's, you know, the time where I can really add value as a translational kind of developer person in that space. Um, I felt that there were no programs in the clinic at the time. But when I looked at the company, I thought, OK, well, they'll move quickly. You know, the it's nothing in the clinic. But, you know, as a chief medical officer, you really want to 
work on real development programs, not just theoretically, you know, if we had an asset, how would we develop it, but really work on, you know, learning and, and designing and getting things done. Um, and I thought that would happen pretty quickly here. So uh, I ultimately just decided to jump ship and join. Yeah. Uh, so this would be for the chief medical officer Correct. role. What year yes. was this? This was 2016. Okay. And uh, company, uh, again, could you, for those who are unfamiliar, d- describe the, the technology approach? Yeah. So it's... Um, you know, we know a lot about synthetic biology now, the ability to read and write DNA. We've sequenced data. We're starting to understand function and sequence and, and understand control elements. Um, there's an industry where that's been applied in other, you know, different fields that's starting to kind of percolate through. Um, the concept behind the company Synlogic was, can you take that technology and apply it to probiotic bacteria to give them functionality in a very specific way that might be, you know, important for disease. Um, so that's the whole concept, bringing together these kind of probiotics where, you know, people take them for health benefits. You know, what they're doing is really unknown, giving them very specific functionality where we know, okay, this function is d- damaged or missing in this disease. Let's put that into a probiotic bacterial chassis. Let's give that to a patient and, you know, with the hope that it will ameliorate, ameliorate their disease symptoms. Um, and that was kind of the whole concept. Eng- engineer it to do one specific thing but, and then you can measure it or maybe one or two, yes. but not, you know, a million different things exactly. where it's impossible to exactly. make heads or tails of yes. what's going on. Yes. Yeah. And I like logic. <laughs> so I think that concept really kind of appealed to me. I'd been following the microbiome space, obviously, as kind of a clinician. And my husband's a gastroenterologist, so I knew kind of a lot of what was going on in the fecal transplant space. And, um, you know, was kind of generally interested. But this kind of appealed to me because it was very much you know, rational, designed, mechanism-based, biomarkers that you understand are you having the desired effect before then going into a big efficacy study. So that was kind of the concept. JC felt very strongly that we needed to learn from drug development principles that have been developed for other platforms and apply them to, you know, our platform. That really appealed to me as well. It's kind of that logical um, development path steps. Um, so ultimately, you know, I decided to join and, and have had tremendous fun in the last three years. So the company was preclinical at this time. Um, and what were uh, top two or three programs that were sort of poised for the clinic where you could really kind of roll up your sleeves as yes. CMO yes. And, and have an impact? So the first program was the ammonia program. That was kind of the day, two days after I joined, we were having our pre-IND meeting, which was our first regulatory interaction um, regarding that program. So the clinical candidate had already been nominated. You know, there was some, um, you know, a straw man development plan had been put in place. And we were having that first interaction with regulators to understand how they would view this product, what kind of preclinical data they needed to support the first in-human clinical trial, what kind of manufacturing, you know, and quality was required for an IND. So all of that was kind of underway. Um, you know, so that happened quite quickly after after I started. So it was great to have kind of a program ready to go when I started was, was wonderful. Ammonia. And the idea was that this engineered probiotic could, you know, be taken orally, mm-hmm. get in, yes. uh, uh, to the the circulation and reduce circulating ammonia levels. So the bacteria actually stays in gut lumen, okay. so it doesn't actually get out of the gut lumen. Um, you know, I think the ammonia idea made a lot of sense because we know that the gut is a source of ammonia in patients with elevated ammonia and from bacterial breakdown of nitrogenous products and urea. So we kind of knew that anyway from physiology and, and medical training. And the other thing that made sense was this first candidate was minimally engineered. So we were we didn't need to import exogenous genetic material. There was already a pathway that existed within the chassis organism that we were using, a probiotic called E. coli nissle. And we were able to generate the clinical candidate without, you know, with just refactoring a pathway that was already endogenous within that organism. So it kind of made an ideal first program because kind of gently engineered as opposed to being extensively engineered. And didn't need to get all the way into the circulation. Exactly. It didn't need to stay in the GI tract. Um, So from that perspective, I think there were some advantages. 
obviously, I think from a development path, ammonia is challenging. Um, you know, I think we executed a good kind of development path with logical steps and, and sequentially. Unfortunately, as, as you referenced earlier in our discussion, we had a readout this summer showing that the bacteria didn't, in fact, reduce ammonia. Um, but I think it was, you know, we learned a tremendous amount from that program. And, you know, I think learning and getting into the clinic and starting to kind of understand how this platform might be applied, I think was was a good thing for us to do. But as with any platform, it's not just a single uh, candidate play. You got other things that can come off of this. Yes. One for phenylketonuria or PKU. Yes. And that is still alive. Correct. Uh, and you were working on this as well. Designing Correct. trials. Yes, yeah, exactly. So that that candidate was about a year behind the first product. And we thought very logically about de-risking the platform with an emphasis on how can we learn the most in the shortest period of time. So while the 1020 program, which was the ammonia program, required activity within the colonic compartment, we thought, okay, if that ends up being more complex or if that ends up not being, you know, let's think about is small intestine a good indication or a good site of action for us. So the PKU program was kind of an ideal second program because it had a slightly different site of action, was still orally delivered, was still kind of had that, you know, not systemic exposure to the product. Um, but, you know, it was kind of a good second program to allow us to learn about a separate kind of area within the GI tract where the bacteria needed to be active. So that program has been great. It's, it's going, you know, it's making very rapid progress in the clinic. And we had some nice biomarker data over the summer showing that we can do what the bacteria is designed to do in vivo. Unlike the ammonia program, we have a really nice biomarker because the product of the pathway is, you know, the pathway is not a mammalian um, enzyme. So it creates a unique biomarker that we're able to measure in blood and then in urine. Um, and I think those tools have given us a lot of information, even early in development, that we can use to continue to advance the program. In vivo data on the biomarkers in humans, not, not mice. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, that's, that, and that's relatively recent as yes. of just this last summer. Correct, yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, a year and a half or so goes by um, and a leadership change. Correct. occurs here at the company. Correct. JC decides time to do something else. Yes. Um, and and what happens then? You, you get tapped on the shoulder? Yeah, it was about a year ago. Um, you know, very happy I had kind of reached the decision that being chief medical officer was probably the best job in the world. So, you know, you got to be exposed to the company's strategy and to understand the overall big picture, but also stay close to the science, the development programs and the patients, which is kind of the area I'm most passionate about. Um, so the board approached me and uh, and said, you know, we're, we're going to announce next week that that we're, you know, instituting a leadership change here. We'd like you to consider being um, CEO on an interim basis initially. If it's something you'd like to do or you think you'd like to do, you can put your hat in the ring. You know, we're initiating an external search. You, you know, spend a couple of months in the role on an interim basis and then come back and let us know if you'd like to be a candidate in that search. Um, so that was kind of had that happened. The company had already gone public by this point, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was your initial reaction to, I mean, you weren't angling for the job. No, I was like, God, no, I have a three-year-old at home. <laughs> In my mind, you know, I kind of tend to be planful and, um, you know, to a fault maybe sometimes, but, um, you know, I, I thought, okay, this is, I'd like to have a go at being CEO around the same time in my life where I learned to play golf. You know, it had been put into that bucket of something I've always wanted to do, but will postpone until, you know, um, kind of, you know, my fifties. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it was kind of that, that was, you know, that was, it was in that compartment for me. Um, you know, felt like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of competent. I'm finding my feet as, as CMO, um, you know, this is kind of a, a, a stretch for me. So I can, that was my kind of just initial, initial in the moment uh, reaction. Um, and you're how old at this point? 43. Okay. Think, yeah. Okay. So not quite in the life plan, the long-term life plan, not, not quite there yet in the cards. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. But, um, but you decide, uh, I mean, the, I mean, to be the interim, I mean, they kind of yeah. <laughs> need you. Yeah. I mean, I was completely, you know, my, my strong belief is that if you're going to join a small company, you see it through, right? There's a thesis, there's a therapeutic thesis. Is this platform going to help patients? 
And, you know, I absolutely wanted to see that through. I really, you know, thought that the really interesting platform, the fact that it was bearing out, that we were, we had this hypothesis and we were starting to demonstrate that that hypothesis was playing out in the clinic, in humans, you know, was just, you know, just amazing for me. So I was committed to being here regardless of what role. Um, so agreed to help on an interim basis. Um Spent a lot of time that summer, you know, I guess a year ago now, meeting other CEOs, meeting other people who had gone from being kind of medical CMO into a CEO role. Um, you know, got a lot of advice, spoke to a lot of people. What's the job really about? Um, you know, I think the biggest piece for me was getting out in the road with Liz and meeting some investors. You know, I really felt like, you know, I don't belong on Wall Street. I belong, you know, in the lab, in the clinic. You know, that's my space. But um you know, kind of demystifying that, getting out, meeting investors, realizing that actually, you know, they're people too. They're interested in doing good science and understanding kind of the company strategy, how we're thinking about developing this platform. Um, you know, just really enjoying having a bunch of really good exchanges where we, you know, went and did some road shows and came away thinking, oh, that's <laughs> that's not that's not that bad. You know, they don't all look like Gordon Gecko, right? So, um, <laughs> this is a big part of the job, that external facing part, and that you hadn't really done no, no to that very point. Little, very little at that point. Um but you know kind of felt like okay yeah I, I can do this. This is this is not so bad. I can I can do this. Um and just you know the the passion for the company and what we're doing and really kind of believing that the that we're doing good science and we're gonna get this platform going. Um, and just the challenge of that was just very motivating to me. So, um, you know, by the end of the summer, I think, you know, the thought that they might give the job to someone else started to irritate me. And that's when I knew it's okay, it's time. It's time, Aoife, <laughs> to put your hat in the ring and to get off the fence here. So, um, yeah, I had that conversation with Peter, who's chairman of the board. Peter Barrett. Peter Barrett. Yeah, he had this big smile. I think he always knew that I was going to come around. <laughs> he was just, he was giving me my space and, and waiting for me to to make that that conclusion so um yeah they, it was october so about a year ago yes yeah yeah it was october exactly when uh, when they they i got the phone call to say yeah you're it so um yeah that was great so how does your uh life change now you're also doing <clears throat> double duty right you're right. still the cmo <laughs> well we've just hired a new cmo so um you know that's a great relief but yes for about a year you're you're for nine months wearing correct. two hats yes, this correct. is a lot to yeah. do yeah, correct. Uh, how how does your life change then as the CEO of the company? I know we talked about this once before. Yes. You, you had made some remark about how you, you need to behave a little differently in meetings. Yeah. Uh, like this idea of thinking out loud or sort of uh, brainstorming, spitballing ideas. It's taken differently when you're the CEO. Yeah, that's a big you, issue. Yeah. It's a big it's it's going to be a constant struggle for me because um you know, I like to think out loud. I like to kind of be involved in brainstorming. I just have to try and become more conscious when and say things like I'm just brainstorming here, you know, or let's take a step back and let's, you know, see if there's if this really is the best plan if there are alternate plans. I don't really mean that five of you yeah. should go work on this for the next 3 months. <laughs> Yeah, so I that, want you to pressure big. test my ideas, which is something you Push can do back. as yes. uh, you know, as you're in lower positions in a company. Yes. Now, this is something I'm sure your CEO friends have probably said. Yeah, you know, that's yes. <laughs> you do want to be uh, circumspect sometimes in yes. meetings. Yes, yeah, and you know, being very clear of okay, this is a decision versus you know we're just throwing around ideas here and you know let's help me think through this and push back and give me your thoughts and having that kind of uh, of a discussion. So that's been one challenge. I think the second big learning was just the impact of your kind of emotions if you're you know worried about something could be something that happens at home could be something happens at work you know you're um and you people will read that you know and interpret that sometimes completely incorrectly you know and you just have to be conscious of your demeanor i think a lot more because everything you do is amplified um you know when you become the ceo and uh, and i think that's also been kind of a big big learning for me too through through this transition mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you've also had to think a lot about organization building Correct. Uh, you've written a little bit about this on the blog yes. uh, what um what would be one big learning or takeaway from that first year or so uh that that uh that you could share with the community yeah i think um 
you know, I've, I've spoken about this kind of organizational development and um, you know, I think the key role of the CEO is looking ahead and, you know, preparing the organization for what's coming in the next phase and, you know, helping through that transition. Okay, what are we going to need to be successful kind of in the next year, 18 months, three years, five years, as opposed to, you know, how did we get here, you know, and, and um I think that's a key component. And some of that is, you know, relates to structure. Are we set up the right way? What's the right amount of process? Um, what's the culture of the organization? Is it becoming too political? Are we, you know, kind of moving away from this one team? Let's make this thing happen. Let's make sure we, we get this worked out. Um, and it's a really tricky balance. You know, I think there's, I've spoken a lot to other people about that balance between how much process is too much process. How, you know, how do you strike that right balance where you maintain the ability to innovate, but you also have some order um, and some discipline. Um, and I think striking that right balance, I think is just, it's a lot more difficult um, than than it might seem on the outside. Um so, you know, getting some structure in place, but not making it so rigid that you lose the ability to be nimble and creative and innovative, I think is just a really critical balance that you always have to adjust right in terms of where are we? Are we getting too far to, you know, this side? Are we moving too far towards chaos? And um, how do you kind of maintain that right balance? Um, I think it's just, uh, it's just challenging company at this stage has got uh, the PKU phase one program, um, a couple of others in yes. the preclinical. Well, we have one, we have an oncology program that we haven't touched on, you know, today in this discussion where we're giving, we're using bacteria as a way to modulate the tumor microenvironment. Um, it's oh, an yes. area this that's hot like, science right now. Goes all the way back to Coley's toxins that's from 100 correct. years ago. That's correct. A great story, but also some great science. Um, I think, you know, more recently we're starting to realize that actually we always thought tumors were sterile. You know, maybe there is, you know, th there are some bacteria in there. Maybe bacteria can actually play a role. Maybe there's a role in stimulating the innate immune response. It's really important in determining responders to checkpoint inhibitor therapy or long-term kind of outcomes in, in patients with some of these bad cancers. Um, our thought process was, you know, well, we know bacteria probably, there is some biology there, right? Bacteria probably do have a role. Our synthetic biology toolbox really gives us tools where we can open up that therapeutic index. We can do things that engineer in safety, and then we can do things that engineer in efficacy. And maybe we can create a therapeutic window there where we could start to think about bacteria as a novel, really powerful modality in the treatment of cancer. Um, and so that's kind of the, our first program is called SINB 1891, which is a tribute to William Coley. It's 1891 is the year that Coley hmm. uh, first injected uh, a patient with his uh, live bacterial cocktail. Um, and we've announced that the IND is open. We're, we're going to start enrolling subjects and uh, we'll have some data next year. Okay. So you've got, a, they'll have a couple of clinical programs. Um, but so, that, I mean, these are still early days. Company's got how many employees? At 80. 80. Okay. And so you're building out the team and some of that structure, the processes you referenced, these things, you know, naturally tend to grow and expand mm -hmm. as yeah. you, you know, yeah. proceed through yes. clinical development. Yeah. 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 So it's a, a really important, you know, job that I've undertaken since becoming the permanent CEO is really getting the leadership team in place who can take, because it starts at the top. And it starts from, you know, getting the right leader and then getting the right organization and, and kind of rolling from there. Um, in the last six months, it never goes as quickly as you hope. But in the last six months, I think we've made some really great hires, people who've had amazing impact um, on the company. You know, I think Tony Awad was one of the first ones in terms of the technology and the manufacturing. And I've, I've written about that, too. Mm -hmm. um, we've just hired a CSO about three months ago and we've just hired his chief medical officer, um, you know, starting on Monday. so uh, And he, he comes from El Nylum, right? Correct. So I'm sure that must be a relief that you can you know, pass some of those duties it on. It's a someone. difficult search and I'm very happy that we found the right person. So uh, yeah, that's been been great. Uh, a great relief just to know he's coming and will be. I already have everything ready to, to hand off uh -huh. on Monday. So uh, I think it's also going to be great for him to come in and get his arms around the programs. I think they're at a really interesting stage 
where you know the substrate there, but he still has an ability to impact design and, and program overall program design. So he's very excited about joining. Well, there's so many interesting aspects of biotech going on here with the the new modality, with the engineered bacteria, like figuring out how to manufacture that and do it in a consistent GMP way, mm-hmm. consistent with what the FDA needs, and and then of course like picking your indications, doing your clinical development strategy right building the organization, uh, you know, uh, it's a pretty fun time, I I would think, to be doing what you do. Yes, yeah, it's amazing. I've learned so much. Um, It's been great. I've gotten to know a lot of people, you know, internally, the team, I think, have been amazing in terms of just supporting, realizing that I'm doing two jobs and kind of picking up um, bits and and, uh, and just been amazing. The board have been amazing to work with and to get to know. And I've really gotten to know the kind of Boston biotech ecosystem and how supportive other CEOs are. You know, you can pick up the phone and call, you know, someone say, oh, can I run something by you? You know, I just need some advice. You know, can you talk through this issue with me? Um, and it's just, I've been amazed by the generosity of people. You know, everyone's been through kind of the whatever issue you're you're dealing with chances are you know a lot of others have been in a similar situation and you know people will proactively reach out after the you know negative trial readout over the summer for instance you know people will just come and kind of do the you know chin up you know it's uh-huh. this, you did the right thing and and uh, move on so that's been an, an amazing experience as well yeah, that's uh, one example of how it you know, it takes a village. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, this is a, a team sport, and yes. it's even more than that. Yes. Uh, it, it, there's we're in the middle of Kendall Square, yes. and, and you know you can meet those people uh, quite easily. Yes, yeah, I think you get respect when you're trying to do something plucky, and you're trying to you know take on a big challenge, and you're working in kind of a therapeutic development space. Um, and I think, you know, if you do good science and, you know, conduct yourself with integrity, I think people can respect that and, uh, and, and will be very generous with you. Ethan Brennan, best of luck. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks on so much, It's been fun. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. The music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.